I want to start by giving you three scenes. Three scenes. Scene one, the fireplace. You're reading a book in front of a fireplace. The flames are quietly simmering over the coals with a deep red glow. And then you notice the room suddenly brightens up. As the fire catches onto some more wooden fuel in the fireplace, a gust of wind comes down the chimney and the whole open fire comes alive. Bright, full and hot. Scene two. You're watching your footy team in the grand final and they are trailing by two goals at the end of the second quarter. They've been playing really well and every player has been doing their part, holding their position. The forwards have been kicking straight, but you just can't catch the opposition. Uh, So you're sitting there on the edge of your seat. Then the team comes back for the third quarter and it's as if they've found a whole reserve of energy that they have been storing. Not only that, but they have a new coordination. The ball just moves quickly down into the forward line. Your team race ahead to finish the third quarter, six goals ahead, and you win the game. Last scene, scene three. You're at Amy Stadium watching Bruce Springsteen and the East Street Band. He's been going for three hours and he's just finished performing the whole of Born in the USA from start to finish, the whole album, that is. Every, everyone is having an amazing time, but your legs are tired. You really need to go to the toilet, but you don't want to leave your position because you might lose your spot. It's already 10 o'clock. And then Bruce goes to another level and all the lights in the whole stadium come on board and the band walk to the front of the stage and start playing Twist and Shout and Beatles songs and everyone's just singing along and, and putting their arms around each other and it's this moment of mass jubilation. Three scenes. So just like, just like the fire that simmers along and then fans into flame, just like the footy team that plays well but then suddenly goes to another level, just like Bruce Springsteen who reaches musical ecstasy with 30,000 people, so too the church congregation and the individual Christian, so too can we go to greater boldness, greater intensity than we normally do. And everyone looking on, looking on at you or looking on at that church that goes to that another level, looks on with amazement at at the life of that person or that church. And when the church and the individual Christian experiences that expanded boldness, there's a word for it. There's a phrase that the Bible uses, and it's the phrase being filled with the Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit. It's more than skill. It's more than human effort. It's not just a fluke. No, God has filled either the church or that person with the Holy Spirit. That's where that extra boldness has come from. This morning, our focus is the spirit who energizes. The spirit who fills us so that we can function at a higher spiritual level for a time. Now, Christians receive the Holy Spirit, just to clarify, once. We receive the Holy Spirit once when we put our faith in Jesus. At that moment, God gives us his spirit So what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? I mean, 
you know, if you have a cup and you fill the cup with water so that it's full to the top, how can you pour more water in? Well, it's interesting that we notice things like this. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray the Lord's Prayer, and he's talking about how to pray in general. And after he does that, he tells them that they should pray for good things, like praying for the Holy Spirit. He says, Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? If you want to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, Jesus is saying, you can ask. Now, next week, we're going to celebrate Pentecost. And the thing is, Jesus made that point before Pentecost. And God did eventually send his Holy Spirit. And so Jesus may not be specifically talking about this concept of being filled with the Holy Spirit in the way that we're going to talk about today, in the way that the book of Acts talked about, in the way that the Ephesians passage talked about. But he is saying that at a basic level, it's good to ask God to be energised by the Holy Spirit. And throughout the Old Testament and the New, there are prophets, there are leaders of the church, including Jesus, who the Bible describes as filled with the Spirit. And the Apostle Paul talks about churches being filled with the Spirit. So let's look at what this actually means. And maybe we want to think about ourselves as individuals and also our church about how we can be filled with the Spirit. Now, my first point is this. I've only got two points. My first, and the, the first point is longer. second point is quick but important. Um, they're both important. The first point is this. Spirit-filled people make awesome friends. Ephesians 5. Now, Ephesians 5 is one of the few times in the Bible which talks about what Spirit-filled people look like. Paul says, don't get drunk on wine which will cause you to make stupid decisions. Rather, be filled with the Spirit. So don't allow your thoughts and feelings and emotions to get fuzzy because of being intoxicated by alcohol. Rather, getting intoxicated by the Holy Spirit will do the opposite effect. will put your, your feelings and your thoughts in sharp focus. This is what it looks like when the community is filled with the Spirit. Verse 19 of the Ephesians passage um, They'll be speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing and make music from your heart to the Lord. So this is a bit of a descriptive part of the passage now from Ephesians 5 where Paul's describing what, what this church will look like or what individuals will look like. So they'll sing and they'll sing spiritual songs and they'll think, they'll think about spiritual poetry. They'll go around meditating on spiritual poetry, uh, spirit-filled Christians might sing on a Sunday at church, like today, but they might also sing as they go to work, humming along God's songs, thinking about spiritual poetry, meditating on stuff from the Bible, not out of religious duty, not because they're some dorks with a massive Christian CD collection and that's all they know because they've been in, growing up in a bubble, but more because it's flowing out of their heart, out of the joy in their heart. One day my dad was having a shower in the Marimbula caravan park and uh, we were on holidays in Marimbula. And um, he was in, you know, in his cubicle having a shower and he started whistling. (laughs) 
And then from another shower cubicle came... (laughs) There was some other bloke who knew what what he was whistling. (laughs) Now, it was completely dorky and hilarious, that moment. But it also shows us this little point that's true about why humming and whistling, you know, Christian poetry and songs is more profound than at first glance. Because we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. It means that we have the melody of the gospel in our hearts, permanently in our hearts. And when we encounter other Christians or when we encounter acts of grace, you know, where we we might witness acts of grace, we might hear a story or watch a movie that has a moment of grace in it. It's like our heart sings that song, that melody of grace, because we want to express it. We want to externalize this melody of the gospel in our hearts. And, you know, theologians and Christians and and people in the Bible sort of talk about music as if God has given us this gift of music for that purpose, to externalize that melody of the gospel in our hearts. Because sometimes, you know, we can express it. Of course, we can express our love for God and, and those deep feelings that we have, those deep things that we looked at last week of God, the deep things of God that are so profound. But sometimes music can do it better than words, sometimes, or in a different way. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, the American theologian from hundreds of years ago, said this. He was actually writing about heaven, but he said, the best, most beautiful, and most perfect way that we have of expressing a sweet concord of mind to each other is by music. When I would form in my mind ideas of a society in the highest degree happy, I think of them as expressing their love, their joy, and the inward concord and harmony and spiritual beauty of their souls by sweetly singing to each other. So music is so much more important than we might think. You might not be a musical person. You might be a, you, a monotone in your singing. You might just sing all the you know, songs at church in one note. It doesn't matter. That's not what this is about, about how good you are a musician. We do music in church not just for entertainment reasons, not just because it's tradition, not because we have to, not because we've been sitting in church and we need to stand and stretch our legs and exercise our lungs. Rather, music is God's gift to us, to the world, so that we can express these deep spiritual things, our emotions towards God. Um, James chapter 5, verse 13 says, If anyone among you suffering, let them pray. And if anyone is cheerful, let them sing praise. And next week you're going to hear the choir, our Mary Creek Gospel Explosion Choir, for the first time woo, at Pentecost. It's an appropriate Sunday for that to occur. And the best thing about singing in the choir, well, actually I'm the accompanist, and I occasionally might sing along too, but is that apart from it being fun, it's actually, you know, great just getting together and expressing these, this music, you know, the, these deep things of God in musical form and just forming harmony. The harmony itself um, is part of the beauty. It's the unity that we have um, together through the music. Um, and it's not just music for its own sake, but it's what we're singing about. Um, Paul Davies and I, when we formed our band, the Anti-4 Movement, and we took an old Salvation Army hymn book we got from an op shop and wrote new music, we realised after a while that it was encouraging to our faith to do this because we were expressing ourselves through music. So the point is, spirit-filled people are always humming a happy God song and reading spiritual poetry and thinking about 
um, Christian art. But they're also really thankful. It says in verse 20, uh, describing the the, the Spirit-filled church, they're always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you can be a Christian and always be criticising and complaining. You can be a Christian and be ungrateful. But a spirit-filled Christian doesn't do any of those things. A spirit-filled Christian is always thankful. A spirit-filled Christian is full of gratitude to God and other people. They don't take life for granted. They praise God for their church community. They thank God for the life and community of friends that they have and the family that God has given them. C.S. Lewis wrote um, to his friend, Don Giovanni Calabria, great name. He says, We ought to give thanks for all fortune. If it is good, because it is good. If, if bad, because it works in us patience, humility, and the contempt of this world and the hope of our eternal country. So Lewis is pointing out that for Christians, God uses our trials and suffering in such a way that we can even say thank you for the trials and suffering. He uses it for good. He uses it to refine us and grow us. And as our spirit groans in our suffering, then we long to be with Jesus in eternity. And the spirit-filled person sees the world this way. The spirit-filled person sees the world this way. So if you are a person who always finds yourself complaining about life, criticising this or that, things aren't quite what, as good as they could be, often seeing the problems in your situation and any and other people, if you have a perpetual feeling of feeling short-changed, hardly done by, dissatisfied, then I encourage you to ask God to fill you with his spirit so that you can be thankful. And at the same time, you can do this in partnership with God. Stop yourself from complaining. Tell your friends, I don't want to be a complainer anymore. I, I, I want to stop criticising. Every time I do it, can you just like tell me, stop criticising, stop complaining. I'll give you permission to do that. Point out when I'm doing it, because sometimes we do it so much we don't even realise. Try and grow in thankfulness to God. Maybe go home and write a list of all the things that you're thankful for, put it on the fridge. This is not the way you want to live, being a complainer. This is not the spirit-filled life. Write a letter or email to friends and tell them what you are thankful for about them. Slowly, over time, you'll feel your heart changes from the burden of being a complainer and always dissatisfied to the freedom of always being thankful. Spirit-filled people are always humming a God tune, always saying thank you and showing gratitude to others and to God. There's another thing, and we left this verse out accidentally in the printing, but it's Ephesians 5, verse 21, which if you turn your Bibles, you'll see that the spirit-filled person is always submitting yourselves to one another in reverence for Christ. And that's really important to this passage. So if you are a Christian and you are abusing your spouse or your kids if you are gossiping or slandering people in the congregation or in, in your workplace, or holding on to unforgiveness for someone in your heart, then, okay, you're, you might be a Christian, you might be with Jesus, but gee, you are not spirit-filled. No matter how many supernatural gifts you might claim to have. You might be the most popular leader, 
the most inspiring preacher. You might be the one who gives the most money away in your friendship circle. Who cares if you're not submitting to each other out of reverence for Christ? And Paul famously writes this same point in the opening of 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. So spirit-filled people love others, and that love is shown practically in a kind of submission. And this is what Paul is talking about. If you read on in Ephesians 5, he gives examples of what this looks like practically. And he basically says, no matter what relational context you're in, and no matter where you find yourself in the power structure, whether as the subordinate weaker one or the more powerful master um, or the leader or the head in, your, in that situation, either way, you should treat each other with humility, respect, grace and love. Now this might sound jarring in our egalitarian culture that we live in where all people are supposedly on the same level and there is no master or slave. Um, There's no kind of hierarchy in our gender or education or sexuality or race or physical ability that we have. But see, we also know that that narrative comes up against a problem constantly because actually people find ourselves in all kinds of power struggles all, all, all over the place, don't we? This aspiration that contemporary culture has that we're all on the same level, it, it never actually seems to find itself um, working out. We all move in different contexts where we will find ourselves either the one in power or the one subordinate. And this in marriage can be true you can tell me that you, until you're blue in the face that you in your married life, uh, you, your husband and wife, you're working at the same level in terms of equality. But we all know that at different times in our lives, one will have the power and one will have less power. And, you know, in those situations, what we've got to do is remember what it means to be a spirit-filled Christian. And that is that whether you've got more physical power or maybe you've got more intellectual power, or maybe you've got more time on your hands, or maybe your emotional health is stronger than your, your spouse. Either way, Paul is saying a spirit-filled person submits to one another out of reverence for Christ. He's aware of social hierarchy, mainly because he's writing this letter as a prisoner. So it's very stark for him as a person at the bottom of the ladder. And he shows us that Christian virtues go considerably further than Roman Ethics. He could have repeated what Aristotle and the other popular philosophers had written about household relationships. They said husbands should rule their wives, their children and slaves, but he doesn't do that. He says husbands should die for their wives, be willing to lay down their life for them. Throughout human history, those who seize power are often also seized by wanting power for themselves. But Jesus says to turn this all upside down in the kingdom of God. He says, give up your power. Stop being a control freak. Stop pushing people around. Stop feeling hardly done by. Stop talking down to your husband. 
Stop expecting your wife to be your servant. He speaks to slaves and masters, and he doesn't endorse slavery, but he's saying the the profound and life-giving point that even if you're a slave, you can be spirit-filled and praising God in that moment. And it might seem ridiculous to us in our modern contemporary minds, but you can have a Holy Spirit-filled disciple of Jesus and be a slave. And if you're a slave and you are fortunate enough to have a master who's also a Christian, and they're spirit-filled, then that's going to radically change your working environment, isn't it? And this scenario was possible because in the Bible, often what happened was whole households became Christians all at once. So the father became a Christian, his whole family did, and his slaves and their families, and you know even the animals became Christians if that was possible. So you could find yourself in that situation, and so see how the Spirit, Holy Spirit, when, it, when the Holy Spirit, he fills us, uh, he actually can radically change the social fabric. And, and this is what happened in European culture over, over time when slavery eventually entered, ended in the 1800s. See, you, the European culture had slavery, and sometimes people point to that and say, ah, that's evidence of the problem with Christianity. But that was despite the gospel, not because of the gospel. The gospel was driving Europe away from having slaves. It took the spirit-filled Christian William Wilberforce to push this through the British Parliament throughout his whole life. So the spirit-filled life is a life marked by genuine submission to one another. Christians who cannot submit to others cannot take responsibility and cannot humble themselves in loving service to others. They're not yielding to the full life of the spirit. Last night, Leo and I were having a chat and uh, we were talking about this and I, I said to him, if you want to live in a way that pleases God, then learn to put others first, submit to one another in reverence for Christ. So if someone at school wants to go on the playground equipment before you do, you can just you say, okay, I'll let you go. And if, if you're with your group of friends and they want to do something different to you at lunchtime, you, you submit to them and let them choose what to do. Don't just try and argue with them and have your way. And uh, if Ezra wants to watch a different TV show to you, you know, the God way is to let Ezra watch his show. And Leo made this really great point. He said, but what if you both want to put the other person first? Then you end up in a big argument about it. And how can you, what, what do you do in that situation? Which is a good point. To which I said, well, that is the kind of world that God wants us to live in, where we're, we're both trying to outdo each other in submitting to each other. That's how we end up having a happy home and a happy um, school, for, school and a happy society. So if you've got control issues, if you are always trying to have your way, if you're stubborn, um, then you, yes, you can be a Christian, yes, you can be saved with Jesus, but you're not living the spirit-filled life. But you can change. God can and wants to fill you with his Holy Spirit. So what you can do is ask for that, and you can also make choices to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The Christ who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life up on the cross as a ransom for you and for me and for many others. 
So can you see why my point here is that spirit-filled people make awesome friends? Because they're always humming, humming happy God songs. They're always saying thank you to you and to God. And they're always uh, putting everyone else in the world first before them. Spirit-filled people are like this because the fullness of the spirit that they are experiencing is transforming their character. The Holy Spirit is energizing them for the Christian joy, for Christian life, for humility. The Spirit is making them more and more like Christ. And everyone loves Jesus. Who wouldn't want to be a bit more like Jesus? That's the kind of friend I want to have and that's the kind of friend I want to be. So there you go. And here's my second and last and shorter point, but very, still very important. Spirit-filled people are bold and brave. And this is coming from the Acts 4 passage. So this is not long after, in the Acts 4 passage, it's not long after the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost and the church is fully on fire. Thousands of people are converting um, to Jesus every day and it, and it mentions that in the, around the passage there. Um, and this is not a revival because a revival is when something has gone down and lain dormant and then gone up again. This is actually the first big wave, you know. <laughs> this is um, better than a revival. This is the birthing of the church. And... Um, in, in 40 AD, uh, we think there was about 1,000 Christians in the Roman Empire, but by the 4th century, there were about 30 million. So um, they've actually done the stats. stats. Um, Rodney Stark famously did it. Um, Richard Stark. Is it Rodney or Richard? Rodney. Tony Stark, yeah. Um, they worked out it was 40% growth every decade for 400 years. That's amazing. So in Acts 4... Um, to the church's key apostle, the church's two key apostles, two of them, John and Peter, had been thrown in jail by the Jewish authorities for preaching about Jesus. And the next day they're released and they rushed back to the home to their church and told them all about what had happened. And, they were, and they'd started to experience persecution and so they prayed to God. And um, in their prayers, they acknowledged this to God. They, they didn't ask for the threats to be removed, but they asked that they should, in the face of the threats, be empowered. In verse 29, they said they want to speak, this praying to God, I want to speak your word with great boldness. And they finished by saying this to God, stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your Holy Spirit, Jesus. And then in verse 31, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Notice they didn't actually pray for the Holy Spirit to, be, to fill them. They prayed for boldness and then God filled them. I'm not saying that therefore you shouldn't pray for, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, but it's a little bit about priorities here. Their priority is boldness for God and then he gives them the Holy Spirit. In the Bible, all the people who were filled with the Spirit were bold. I mean, John the Baptist was filled with the Spirit, and his two parents, were Elizabeth and Zacharias, were also filled with the Spirit. Barnabas was filled with the Spirit. Stephen, the first martyr, is filled with the Spirit. Right up until the moment, it says, right up until the moment he was stoned to death, he was filled with the Spirit. And let's not forget all the disciples at Pentecost. And they went on in this state of that they were in Pentecost. They were a filled, Spirit-filled people, um, even up for a long time. It keeps mentioning this in Acts 13. And while the spirit feeling has an effect on your heart and it changes your emotions, it gives you boldness and joy, God tends to fill people with his spirit 
for a purpose, to serve him. So you can ask God to fill you with his spirit, but don't just ask so that you can have an emotional experience. Rather, ask so that he can give you um, boldness to serve him. And the thing you must observe is that with increased boldness comes increased opposition. And that most of, if not all, the spirit-empowered people in the Bible, they faced increased suffering and opposition. The Gospel of Mark brings this out, this point, as a model of the spirit-baptized um, and the spirit-filled life is one that's in conflict with the devil's kingdom. Jesus is the one who had the spirit without measure, says the Gospel of John. He defeats the devil by healing the sick and freeing those possessed by demons. The devil attacks Jesus through the devil's religious and political agents, and Jesus finally dies but then defeats death itself in the resurrection. And um, the theologian Craig Keener, who's more of a charismatic um, theologian in his theology, he says this, This is the model for spirit-filled existence. A Christian must be ready to display God's power, but also to pay the price of death for doing so. The spirit who inspired the scriptures and empowered Jesus to do miraculous works that skeptics reviled will also anoint Jesus' witness to speak his witnesses to speak his message in times of persecution. Some parts of the Pentecostal church these days push that we should be filled with the Spirit so that we can be um, experience more and more blessing, more and more blessing, more and more blessing. But what Mark is saying and what the book of Acts is saying, is, and if we observe Jesus, if we really want to be filled with the Spirit, you should expect to see increased persecution and suffering. This is the Jesus way. But the good news is, this, is that the Holy Spirit sustains us through all of this. In, the Holy Spirit invites us to groan as we experience this suffering, as we anticipate the new creation. So I wonder if perhaps you are not spirit-filled because you, you're a Christian, but you're not a filled with a spirit Christian because perhaps deep down you don't want to be because you're afraid of what that's going to look like. Perhaps you would rather your life to continue on smoothly without any opposition or persecution. If we want Mary Creek to keep growing through mission and evangelism, we can't do it in our own strength. We need increased boldness. The early church, they had far less than we do. They didn't have social media and internet. They didn't have heaps of Christian literature. They didn't have global transportation. Silver and gold, they had none. But they did have a radical dependence on the power of God. And they were filled with a spirit who energized them. Their hearts were changed so that they were bursting with joy and they were walking around and kicking the dust and singing Christian songs and thinking about poetry and saying thanks and putting other people first. And they were bold, so much so that they changed the whole structure of the Roman Empire over time. So let's pray for boldness. Let's pray for that joy and let's pray that we will be a spirit-filled church and a spirit-filled people. Lord God, we thank you so much that while you've given us uh, your Holy Spirit, if we are Christians, then that you can actually give us more. You've got more to give. And we pray that we can be a spirit-filled people, that we can express that joy, that simple joy as our character and our hearts changed. And we pray that we will be given that bold uh, boldness and that purpose 
um, and that we could emulate in some way the early church's boldness and passion. Because we know that that is the only way that we will reach our world um, by your power. Amen.